Please turn, if you will, to our scripture reading, which is taken from Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verses 9 to 27. And our sermon passage, which we'll turn to in a few moments, is taken from Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Zechariah 2, 1 to 5. Again, our scripture reading, Revelation 21, 9 to 27. And our sermon passage is Zechariah 2, verses 1 to 5. So let's turn our attention first to Revelation 21, 9 to 27. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. This is the Lord speaking to you. Listen to his voice. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. Its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. The glory of God gives it, gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now turning to the book of Zechariah, it's toward the end of your Old Testaments, just prior to Malachi, Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what, it's, what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. This ends the reading of God's most holy and precious 
inerrant and inspired word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it endures, it abides, that you have preserved it for us down to this very day. We're thankful that your word is you speaking to us. And we're grateful, O Lord, for all that you tell us in your word. We ask for your blessings upon us now as your word is to be preached. We pray, Lord, for the one who preaches, for the ones who hear. We pray that you would give us insight and understanding. We pray, dear Lord, that you would cause us, by the reading of your word and by the preaching of your word, to desire all the more to bow before you in awe, with reverence. That you would give us the desire to worship you, because you are the thrice holy God who is worthy of all our worship. So please bless us now, we pray, in Christ's holy name. Amen. Just a quick recap, a quick uh, 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 reminder of the history of what's going on in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah was called as a prophet of God to Judah around 520 B.C. Now you probably remember that Judah, the southern kingdom, went into exile to Babylon in 586 B.C., so some 66 years prior, and some exiles had been returning to Judah uh, since around 538 B.C. And these exiles had been sent back to Jerusalem from Babylon for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. But by the time that Zechariah was called to be a prophet in 520 B.C., the altar of the temple was the only thing that had been rebuilt 18 years. And all they had gotten done, all they had been able to rebuild was the altar of the temple. And that was because the people had lost their focus. They had been in Jerusalem for 18 years and had very little to show for it. Now the prophet Haggai, which is the book just prior to Zechariah in your Bible, was a contemporary of Zechariah. And in Haggai 1.9, we find that the people had become solely focused on rebuilding their own houses instead of the temple. They had turned their thoughts and their attentions and their efforts away from the rebuilding of the temple, which was the whole reason why they were sent back from exile in Babylon to build the temple, they turned their focus on their own homes, building their houses. And God's first words to his people through the prophet Zechariah was the command for them to repent. He promised them that if they returned to the Lord, he would return to them. And the people heard these words and they did repent. And the fruit of their repentance was the renewed reconstruction of the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so by 515 B.C., the temple had been fully rebuilt. They did in five years what they had not been able to do in the previous 18. Well, after God's warning to them and their repentance in late 520 and early 519, God began to give visions to the prophet Zechariah. These are known as the night visions, a series of them that Zechariah receives in the first half of this book. And in these visions, God promised an outpouring of his love and his mercy upon the people as they worked to rebuild his temple and the city of Jerusalem. But as our passage this morning shows, it's not the physical structures of either the temple or of the buildings of the city that God is most interested in. The emphasis on this passage is on spiritual Jerusalem. The rebuilding of the physical structures was representative of the rebuilding effort God was undertaking with regard to his people who constituted his church in that day. 
As with so many things having to do with God's kingdom, the physical city of Jerusalem was a visible manifestation of a spiritual reality. The destruction that had come upon Jerusalem in 586 BC was a physical manifestation of the spiritual decimation that had already taken place within the hearts of those who who claimed to be God's people. In the theocratic state that was ancient Israel, which encompassed Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah, and the northern kingdom of Israel, there was a direct correlation between the spiritual condition of the people and the physical condition of the nation. It was a theocracy. These two things were tied hand in hand for Israel. And so destruction came to Israel and Judah and ultimately to Jerusalem because of the people's, the condition of the people's hearts, because of their lack of love for God. But with the people's repentance and renewed faith, God promises that he will reestablish his favored city, Jerusalem, the place of his earthly abode. But I ask you, as we make our way through the sermon today, to, to think on this thought, to hold this proposition before you. God will rule and defend the city he has built of his own people, the church. God will rule and defend the city he has built of his own people, the church. The sermon has two parts. The first is the measuring line, and the second is a city without walls. So again, the measuring line, that's the first part of the sermon, and a city without walls is the second. So let's turn our attention to the first part of the sermon, the measuring line. This is the third vision of Zechariah, and it begins with these words, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Now, God had promised back in chapter 1, verse 16, that a measuring line would be stretched out over Jerusalem, meaning that God intended for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. But in Jerusalem's past, the stretching of the measuring line meant the exact opposite of a rebuilding plan. In the book of Lamentations, which is a series of laments about the fall of Jerusalem in 586, we read these words in chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. The measuring line was a tool of destruction there in Lamentations. But in Zechariah, the measuring line becomes an implement of reconstruction. Now, when Zechariah saw this man with the measuring line, he said in verse 2, Where are you going? To which this man responded, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And according to one commentator, the future sense of the verses uh, verses 4 to 5 indicate that the man is intending to make measurements for the future walls of Jerusalem rather than measuring the walls that had already been rebuilt. Now, there's no description of this man. There's no indication given of who he is, but most likely he represents God's people in this vision. He certainly seems to be motivated to carry out his measuring. In verse 4, the angel who was talking to Zechariah instructed the other angel to run after the man who was described there as a young man. Now, the first vision to Zechariah is found in chapter 1, verses 7 to 17. And according to Haggai 1, verse 15, the work of rebuilding the temple had begun five months before the day of Zechariah's first vision. But they still had several years of rebuilding ahead. And the man in the current vision represents those who are now laboring. They have a newfound zeal following their repentance. That's often the case, isn't it? You're brought to a point of conviction for your sins, often. What follows is this newfound zeal. You want to get it all done now. 
In the words of one commentator, this man is believed to be the prophet's message that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. This man has believed the prophet's message that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. But he expects the new Jerusalem to be no different than the old. And he would therefore conform its measurements to those that it had before the fall. The man was certainly zealous as he ran to make measurements. But in his zeal, he got ahead of himself, as we'll see in the next section, that the Lord had to rein him in. He had to call him back, slow him down. And that leads us to the next section, a city without walls. The young man who answered Zechariah's question was now running off to take measurements of Jerusalem, which would include where its boundary walls would be built. But the next three verses make clear that the walls around Jerusalem were not part of God's reconstruction plan here. Verses 3 and 4 say, And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. And another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. Despite the young man's zeal for walls around Jerusalem, they are not a part of God's architectural drawings. And so the angel who talked with Zechariah, previously identified as the rider of the red horse, previously identified as the angel of the Lord in the book of Zechariah, this man tells the angel who approaches to run after the young man and to stop him from surveying the walls. He didn't want him to carry out these measurements. Why is that? It's because there will be no walls in this newly constructed Jerusalem in this vision. And the reason that's given in verse 4 is because the city of Jerusalem is going to overflow with people and livestock. There's going to be too many people and livestock for walls to contain all of them. Now this is a good place to remind ourselves that this is a vision concerning spiritual Jerusalem, not the physical Jerusalem that will be rebuilt over a period of hundreds of years after its destruction in 586. About 80 to 100 years after Zechariah's time in the 440s to 420s BC, the wall around Jerusalem will be rebuilt under the direction of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah chapter 2 makes clear that the desire to rebuild the wall around the city had been placed in Nehemiah's heart by God himself. He had come to Jerusalem from exile in Persia for the purpose of rebuilding the wall. And so God clearly understood that the physical city of Jerusalem needed a wall around it for the protection of the temple and his people. Well, how do we understand this vision in Zechariah chapter 2 in light of what's going to happen historically later on? The only way that we can't see this as an instance of God contradicting himself, which cannot happen, is to understand that the Jerusalem and Zechariah's vision is spiritual, not physical Jerusalem. But verse 4 gives evidence to this fact as well. The angel speaks in the future tense. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. Now, a village or a city in that day, in the ancient world, it was a, a city without walls was a disgrace. It was, this was certainly how Nehemiah viewed it. Even our missionaries to Africa, those in Uganda, they go out to villages that have walls, thickets, uh, built around them to, to keep out those who would come in and try to steal their cattle, to keep out uh, beasts of uh, the, the savannah that would come in and do damage. But the angel in this vision indicates that walls would impede God's planned growth for the city. Now, ordinarily, when a city outgrew its wall, another wall around the city would be built farther out. You can see this in many ancient walled cities in Europe today. They have concentric rings of walls going around them because the city simply outgrew 
the bounds of the walls. The expectation of the angels' words in our passage is that Jerusalem will outgrow any walls that are built around it. <coughs> this expectation was rooted in the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. We read there, and he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and the number of the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The angel of the Lord anticipated the fulfillment of this promise to Abraham in the new Jerusalem. But this new Jerusalem was not the Jerusalem that those who had returned would rebuild. The rebuilt city with its rebuilt temple around which Nehemiah and his fellow workers would rebuild the wall served to point to the spiritual city. The vision then served to remind the former exiles who had returned to Jerusalem that though they labored amidst the rubble of the destroyed buildings in the city, there was a heavenly Jerusalem which could never be torn down. So again, physical Jerusalem, it's destroyed yet again in AD 70. Physical Jerusalem still hasn't been rebuilt in the way that it was in the ancient world. And so the vision served to remind the former exiles who had returned to to Jerusalem that though they labored amidst the rubble of the destroyed buildings in the city, there was a heavenly Jerusalem which could never be torn down. It's this Jerusalem to which the angel of the Lord refers. And it is to this same Jerusalem the writer of the book of Hebrews refers in Hebrews 12.22 where he says, But you have come to to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And this city has been constructed specifically for the purpose of worship. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24 continues. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Though the temple might be the physical It might be the place in physical Jerusalem in which worship takes place. In spiritual, heavenly Jerusalem, it takes place throughout. The the assembly of the firstborn fills the entire city. And this is why there are no walls around the city in Zechariah's vision. Because the walls would serve as an impediment, a barrier. They would restrict those who might come into the city. Who belong in the city. The heavenly Jerusalem is open to Jew and Greek, male and female, serve uh, slave and free. Everyone who truly believes in Jesus Christ, who has been enrolled in heaven, is welcomed into spiritual Jerusalem. And as you think about it, it starts to sound like a description of the church. Everyone, regardless of race, ethnicity, sex, economic standing, anything else, these natural barriers that we put up between ourselves... Anyone who makes a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ shall be welcomed into membership. The church is not a secret society. It's not an exclusive club for a select few. In fact, the church is, or at least it should be, one of the most inclusive institutions around. The requirement for membership is simply this, that you profess faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and you show a willingness to walk in obedience to His commands. And everyone who truly professes faith in Jesus Christ will be welcomed into his spiritual Jerusalem, of which the church is now the visible, physical manifestation on earth. 
And all those who believe are described in our passage in verse 4 as a multitude so big that walls cannot possibly contain them. This is exactly the picture you get in the book of Acts, where the church is clearly seen as the fulfillment of this vision in Zechariah. But the problem, there is a problem with an unwalled city. What is to defend and protect its inhabitants from attack? This was part of the reason for Nehemiah's concern and grief when he saw the broken down condition of the physical wall around Jerusalem. The threat to the city of Jerusalem was so real that Nehemiah and his fellow workers carried swords strapped to their backs as they laid the stones for the, for the wall. Any concerns for this unwalled spiritual Jerusalem are alleviated for us in verse 5 of our passage. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. God anticipates the anxiety that a city without walls might cause. He tells his people that there will in fact be a wall, but not one that has been built by human hands. He is the protection. He's the defense for those who belong to the church. He determines who may pass, who may enter into the city. He is the wall itself. He's a wall of fire around it. He purifies those who enter in. He keeps out those who do not trust in his son for salvation. God is the wall of fire who surrounds this city, this kingdom, the church. And he alone determines who may enter in. And it is this specific city inhabited by believers in Christ from every part of humanity for whom Jesus was crucified. Verse 5 of our passage goes on to say that God will be the glory in her midst. And a vivid description of this is found in Revelation 21, in which John receives the vision of a new Jerusalem. In verses 9 through the end of chapter 21, which we read before our sermon passage, we're given this rich description of this new city. It's constructed of every conceivable type of precious stones with 12 foundations and 12 gates. It does have walls in the vision, we read that, but the 12 gates are never shut by day, and there is no night there. The city is described as being pure as gold and transparent as glass. But also, there is no sun or moon in this new heavenly Jerusalem. Revelation 21.23 says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is, its lamp is the Lamb. The glory of God will shine as a light emanating from the midst of the city, shining through every part of it because it's clear as glass. There is no place for shadow. And this, of course, reminds us, it takes us back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Genesis 1, where there's light, but the sun and the moon haven't been created. This city, this new Jerusalem, is the beautiful and perfected bride of Christ, the church to which the earthly, visible, imperfect church is intimately connected. While she, may, while she has not been made perfect in the way that the book of Revelation describes the church, the visible church as we see her today is the earthly manifestation, the physical manifestation of the spiritual reality in the book of Revelation. And we sometimes denigrate the earthly church. Certainly the church has warts and blemishes. And some who call themselves the church are not the church because they do not proclaim the true gospel. But the church is that body for whom Jesus died. And as the earthly manifestation of the spiritual reality, the church's main purpose is for the glory of God to shine forth from our midst. Private and family worship are important. 
But we are most properly constituted as the church when we assemble for worship on the Lord's day. It is then that God's glory most fully shines forth from God's people. So what's the takeaway from this passage? What do you, what do you go home with to carry in your pocket around with you for at least the next week? It's easy to put the church down. A lot of people are putting the church down right now. A lot of people are quitting church. A lot of people, because of damage that they have received in the church at the hands of those who are followers of Jesus Christ, are going through what's being described commonly in the modern parlance, the current parlance of the day, is deconstruction. There's a lot of hate and anger and disgust directed at the church. And indeed... Much of what passes for the church today has veered completely away from Scripture. And even we who profess the true faith, we get a lot wrong. Many have said that the church as an institution is no longer necessary and are advocating giving up on the church altogether. It seems like everybody nowadays loves to hate on institutions, and the church especially. It's an institution. We have to acknowledge there's been harmful conflict in many churches. Many people have come away broken and reluctant to put themselves through it again. But remember this. It is for the church. It it is the church for whom Jesus Christ died. He died so that individual sinners would, would be redeemed. That we would be placed in his body. He died so that all of his elect would become one, a unified body, as he prayed in John 17. And so you might be tempted at some point... Whether it's now, sometime near, near in the future, later on in life, you might be tempted to give up on church. You might maintain that you're still a Christian, but you say that you're done with the institution. But remember this when you are tempted to do so. It is the church, the body, the city in this passage that God builds up and promises to protect. He is the consuming wall of fire around her. He is the glory that shines forth from her midst. She might not be perfect, but she is his. And one day she will be made perfect, just as Christ Jesus is perfect. And we, a small little corner of that great universal church, are in the process of being made perfect right now. Even as we have gathered together this morning to worship the Lord. God is making you and me more and more like Jesus. He wants us to be like Jesus. He saved us for that specific purpose. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for Christ's church. We thank you that we're part of it. Lord, we know all too well there are some ugly spots. We know all too well that there are problems. And there are times for each of us in our lives where we contemplate walking away, getting as far away as we can because of hurts and sorrows that we've endured. We pray that you would remind us that your church is the apple of your eye, that you love her, that Christ Jesus died for her, that she is his bride. And so we pray, Lord, that when we are tempted to walk away, that we would be reminded that your glory shines forth from your church even today, even now. That you light her up and light her path. 
We pray that you would help us to look forward to heavenly Jerusalem. To look forward to being with you in the full light of your glory. Where fears and sorrows and hardships will be no more. We pray that you would sustain us as we walk through this dark and wearying world. And we pray, Lord, that your church, that it would prove to be an oasis. And that by your spirit, you would make your church more and more like the heavenly reality that it reflects, that it points to. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.